according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Jeremiah chapter 5 this morning. Remember, we are on our roller coaster as we tackled Isaiah in 66 weeks, 66 chapters, one per Sunday. We have now moved on to Jeremiah, and at least through four Sundays, we have kept the pace. Although last week was pretty tough. I tell you, you got to listen to that MP3 file. That's why these files get posted on the website. The, uh, the message will be on the website before you make it home today, and you got the opportunity to uh, listen to it and review it, because uh, when you're going this fast, I tell you, you got to stop, slow down, go back and hit it again and again and again. But for this morning, we're in Jeremiah chapter 5. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now, and take note, and see in her open square, and seek in her open squares, if you can find a man. If there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. All he has to do is find one righteous man in, in Jerusalem, and the destruction by the Babylonians will be averted. All right? Tough task. Let's uh, open our study with a word of prayer, and we might sanctify our thinking and ask for the Father's blessing upon our time today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, for the absolute truth of the Word of God that provides us with our stability, provides comfort, strength, the anchor which we have, Father, keeping us stable in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of uncertain times. I thank you for the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the message contained in each book, and the two books together, Father, forming such a tandem. I ask uh, that the content of this doctrine will be powerful for Austin Bible Church and for believers beyond our, uh, beyond our immediate scope here, Father. Anyone listening to these messages, that you would be equipping us to deal with what's, uh, what's on the horizon, Father, in, in our nation. Our uh, hope is not in the ballot box. It's not in politicians. It's not in just electing the right people. Father, our hope is in you. And we need you to be at work in your children that believers today would wake up and get serious about their walk and uh, quit fooling around with the fun and games and the entertainment and begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless our time in the Word today. Use it for your glory, for the glory of your Son. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, much like Ezekiel and more so Isaiah did a little bit, but Jeremiah does quite a few uh, performances. He does a lot of what we might call today performance art, uh, dramas, pantomimes, other uh, such activity. Ezekiel was very famous for it as well being tied up with a rope and laying on one side for 40 days and, and rolling over and laying on the other side for 390 days as a public display to uh, the exiles in, uh, in Babylon. And so this is the first of several that we're going to find through the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah is going to go forth and accomplish an activity in full public view of everybody who then might be led to ask, what are you doing this for? <laughs> All right? What in the world are you doing this for? Why are you roaming to and fro through the streets? Why are you stopping in the city squares? And what is it exactly that you are surveying in this, uh, in this mission of yours? And so again, 
we find uh, the instructions that come here in verse 1 and following. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares. And this is the place of business. This is the place of uh, the marketplace, the, the, uh, uh, the law, the place of judgments and so forth. See if you can find a man, if there is one there who does justice, who seeks truth. And it's not necessarily the internal righteousness that was at play in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it is an extension of that. It is the personal righteousness that is then placed into application, that is having a dynamic at work in public life. And if you can find one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And you think, well, what an easy task. Surely there must be one. There's got to be somebody who uh, is uh, living out their Christian walk, who is accomplishing in their public life a reflection of their personal faith. And, uh, well, you might think that, and then we'll get past verse 1, and you'll find out that uh, he can't find even, even one. What's interesting here in these early six verses is that Jeremiah is given a task ten times easier than the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah. You might remember the very famous chapter in Genesis 18 when the Lord is coming and he's on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And as uh, two of the angels move on beyond them and they go down to the city, uh, the Lord stays behind and he's on this hill and he's talking to Abraham. And Abraham challenges the Lord in prayer and begins to, to uh, call upon God to manifest his faithfulness. And, and he starts with a too big a number. He starts with 50. And he says, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom, and uh, God said he would spare Sodom if there were 50 righteous. And, uh, and I, I'm kind of curious what answer Abraham really expected. He almost seemed surprised that the Lord said, okay, deal, when, uh, when he named the, the number of 50. And then right away Abraham realized, I, I think I overestimated there, uh, and he starts to talk the Lord down. And it's a very, I'm not going to turn there because it, 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 I would get lost in that chapter. I'd spend the whole hour in that chapter. But Abraham talks the Lord down to 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And he stops with 10. And he stops on his own initiative. God didn't tell him, all right, Abraham, last chance. Abraham himself said, all right, Lord, here's my last offer. And Abraham himself limited his prayer life. And he stopped it at 10 righteous. And of course, he was nine short because Lot was the only, the only believer there. Not his wife, not his children, and it's kind of a sad story. Well, if Lot would have been in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, Lot, theoretically, could have rescued, could have rescued uh, Jerusalem. Anyway, there's other passages that we're going to see with respect to this. Um, God makes this offer, and it's a legitimate offer, but of course God and His sovereignty and His omniscience knows that uh, the remnant is not there. All right, the remnant is not there. In other passages, we find out that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were all within Jerusalem's walls, it would not save Jerusalem from the Babylonian destruction. So we have uh, several passages, I think, that we can bring to bear in the same context. But you'll notice the, uh, the, the criteria he's looking for there is not personal faith in terms of being saved and having eternal life, but it is how they are expressing that faith. How, not, how they are living out that faith in a public testimony. Are they doing justice? Not just do they have righteousness. That was the criteria for Sodom and Gomorrah. Are there ten righteous? That they, do they have righteousness? This is not just a possession of righteousness, but the actual expression of justice, of mishpat in the Hebrew. 
And uh, so here again, we would ask ourselves similar questions in the city of Austin. What is the ratio of regenerate to unregenerate in the city of Austin? You know, how many unbelievers do we have versus saved individuals? And then once we kind of guesstimated what that number might be, how many of the truly regenerate are living out their faith in a visible expression of, the, of, their, of their testimony for Jesus Christ? How many are conducting their lives according to the word of God? And how many are just living like all the unbelievers live for themselves, for their flesh, for the uh, passing pleasures of sin? And so we see this here as well. Verse 2, although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Now here's a here's language of a vow, and this is intense. If we were doing this like on a Wednesday night or Sunday morning at 930 uh, on a verse-by-verse verse basis, that verse there would take weeks, all right? Because the nature of vows and the, na- and the nature of oaths and the understanding that the God who cannot lie is taking a vow. And, and he, he stakes the truth of what he's saying on his own life. As I live, right? You and I can say, cross my heart and hope to die, right? And at least there's some basis of of potential there because we're mortal we can die so if i if i if i say i swear to god or kill me you know uh, anything like that it's a legitimate offer you can put me to death if you find that i'm lying to you but when god says as i live he's the god who cannot die and so the god who cannot lie is taking a vow based upon death and his willingness to accept death i find these things in, in incredibly deep and aspects that really point forward to the God who does die when the person of his son, the word becomes flesh and lays down his life that we might have eternal life. In any event, as the Lord lives, we addressed it a week ago in chapter 4, and it comes back here in chapter 5. This was the criteria, by the way, at second advent when Israel will survive the tribulation. They have to call upon the Lord and swear as the Lord lives, part of their criteria for second advent to be rescued from antichrist in the tribulation back to jeremiah's generation though they say it they use the right words like a lot of christian denominations have biblical lingo they can talk about grace through faith but are they living it and so although they say as the lord lives surely they swear falsely and god sees through it all Verse 3, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. God is so gracious. The lessons that He wants us to learn, we can learn the easy way or the hard way. You know, we can learn what we're supposed to learn in Bible class, and we can learn in fellowship, and we can learn walking in the light, and we can learn the doctrine that he has for us, but if we fail to do that, he'll teach us through discipline. He will put his hand upon us in our life, and we will learn through struggles. We will learn, we will really learn what faith is about as we submit to his discipline. Problem is, though, what if we don't submit to that discipline? What if we respond negatively? What if we harden our hearts? That's what he's describing here. You've smitten them, but they didn't weaken. You uh, consumed them, but they refused to take correction. And each step of the way, God's discipline gets harder and harder and harder until what? The unrepentant believer, we're told, dies the sin unto death. There is a sin unto death. All right, we don't pray for it, we don't ask for it, but it is there. 
Ananias and Sapphira illustrate that in Acts chapter 5. And so they made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And so I do find this uh, interesting as we work our way through this. A survey of Jerusalem for one just and faithful man comes up empty. And he's in the marketplaces. He's in the squares. He's looking at shopkeepers. He's looking at courts. He's looking at judicial rulings. He's looking at every facet of business and public life. And he can't find one that's not cheating. One that has equal uh, scales for his uh, product or one that's not in on the take and taking bribes and things of that nature. All he needs is to find one and he comes up empty. Interestingly enough, we have parallel prophets in Ezekiel 18 and Zechariah chapter 8. These are the character traits of the righteous and they can change from generation to generation. You could have great-grandparents and crummy children and then great-grandchildren and it can go back and forth from generation to generation. And there's a... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in Ezekiel 18, we notice God holds generations accountable. Such as the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, the conquest generation. Here we have the uh, destruction of Jerusalem generation. And the fact is, is that uh, anyone that God was going to spare, he got them to Babylon before the destruction fell. Daniel was rescued. Ezekiel was rescued. The other captives were taken captive, not in judgment, but in mercy. God was rescuing the remnant before he brings the wrath to Jerusalem. I think Jeremiah himself was the lone exception to this rule. All right. He was inside the city and watched the walls fall around so that he could be the public testimony to God's righteousness in this regard. Ezekiel 18, verses 8 and 9, and there's a larger context for this, but in his own generation, as you've seen in Ezekiel 18, 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, notice that? There's, you're saved, you have positional righteousness, but also you are expressing that. You are, you're taking in the Word of God and you're living the Word of God. You're practicing justice and righteousness. And all these things. And, and, and uh, what he does here in this list of things in verses 6 and 7 and 8. And you'll notice if he, in verse 8, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and ex- executes true justice between man and man, If he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. See, it's it's bigger than just simply if he's saved and going to heaven or if he's not saved and going to hell. The issue is, is he living out his salvation in fear and trembling before the Lord? Is he opening himself up for discipline in time? Or is he opening himself up for blessing in time? Then in verse 10, he may have a violent son. Uh Uh-oh. All right, the best of parents can have the worst of kids. All right, and the worst of parents can have the best of kids in the grace of God. If you had a dysfunctional upbringing, thank God that you're now saved and part of God's family, and uh, and there's there's grace all the way. Anyway, that's a longer chapter. I don't want to get lost in that. Zechariah eight sixteen would also be a passage here, a correlating passage here. But back to Jeremiah five then, and it looks pretty gloomy through verse three. But Jeremiah has an idea in verse 4. 
that I said, they are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. In other words, Jeremiah is just looking around. All he sees is the poor, the lower class, the people on the streets. Um, he says, I'm going to go to the great and speak to them, for they will know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. All right? So he says, it's not fair, God. You've sent me to the streets, to the public, to the marketplaces. And, and yeah, among the lower class, sure, there's no one. But they just don't know any better. They're not as well educated. Let me go to the, to the upper class. Let me go to the princes and the priests and the prophets and the, and the better neighborhoods. All right? Because they obviously don't come here. They send their servants here. Let me go to where they are. Let me find the real people who know the law. And this is interesting, you know, pitting one economic class against another economic class. Do you think that's new? Do you think that's recent? Did we just invent that in our culture where we can yell at the 1% and get mad at what they have and things like that? No. This is, uh, you know, coveting is as old as man. And a misimpression that wealthier people are godly. That God has shined upon them. The reason why they're the mighty and not the poor is because, well, they're obviously in the will of God. They're obviously serving God. They're obviously saved. God's smiling upon them. That's why they're rich. All right? I wonder half the time if this chapter is about Jeremiah preaching to the people or Jeremiah learning his own lesson through what it is that he's preaching. Because Jeremiah is the one that's, that's making the excuses here in verse 4 that says, well, that's only the poor, Lord. Let me go talk to the to the mighty. Okay? Thankfully, uh, we realize uh, if you read the, the passage on the great white throne, you read other passages about eternity, guess what? It's the small and the great alike that are brought out of death and Hades and stand before the, the judgment, the great white throne. Likewise, you and I at the judgment seat of Christ, doesn't matter if we came from poor families or rich families or something in between. We can rejoice over that too. All right, so verse 5 I will go to the great and speak to them. They know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But you see, they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke. Therefore, a lion from the forest will slay them. A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them will be torn to pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are numerous. See, God is so long-suffering. He's put up with a lot. But now it's just piled so high and so deep. How can he not judge them? Which comes in the questions of verse 7 and verse 9. Why should I pardon you? Can you give me one good reason why I shouldn't drop the hammer on you guys? Because I can't find one righteous man in your, in your public life. Likewise, verse 9. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? If God doesn't judge that wickedness, who does God judge? Rhetorical questions that drive the point home. The streets and the squares gave Jeremiah a dismal view of the poor, but he retained a misguided expectation for the great among his people. He retained a misguided expectation for the great among his people. You know, and I think every culture has to stop and realize who, who do they consider poor and who do they consider great? And why do you give greater credibility to somebody because of his social status or his income or his place in life or where he is? You say, well, he's got to be a smart guy. He's got to have something going for him. Look, he's a billionaire. Ask yourself, 
What is the standard by which God judges the heart? What is the standard by which God is using a servant to serve him? A lot of things we could ask here. But when we have this concept of the small and the great, and we start classifying people that way, and we start envying where we're not and where we want to be, instead of being faithful where we are and where God's put us, I think we end up in a lot of trouble. If you want more on this, I would recommend Psalm 62.9. There's a good contrast there. And the Hebrew idiom, by the way, is very fascinating. One of them is called Ben-Adam, and the other one is called Ben-Ish. And if you know the word for man, we've got Adam, like Adam, uh, and then we have Ish. And uh, Adam speaks of the earth and his earthiness and his mortality, but Ish speaks of his dignity as a man in the image of the I am and the image of God. And of course, woman is named Isha. And interesting, Ben-Adam is different from Ben-Ish, as a, as a figure of speech or as an idiomatic usage, we have the poor and the great. Men of low degree, that would be your Ben Adam, right? Men of low degree are only vanity. And men of rank, the Ben Ish, the men who should be better than those other men, but they too are a lie. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up, and they are together lighter than breath. And so uh, this is a psalm in David's day, and it shows you his estimation of the small and the great. All right. Also, uh, John 7. You want a good... If you ever want to encounter people that could, put, that could classify people and look down their long noses at lesser people, uh, the Pharisees are a good place to turn. And you find them in, in John, uh, all the Gospels, but reading here in John 7... And this is where uh, we've got to be on our guard. Pastors can get full of themselves and theologians can start spouting their credentials. And uh, they're mad at these officers because these officers had, a, had an arrest warrant. Uh, they were supposed to arrest Jesus here and, uh, and they came back empty-handed. Uh, verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him. And so verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, they said to him, why did you not bring him? You know, uh, if I, I was an MP for four years, and if I was sent out with an arrest warrant, I wasn't going to come back to the provost marshal's office until I had the, the guy in hand. I mean, goodness. Why, uh, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. See, these uh, officers, they took the time to listen to what he was saying. All right. Dangerous. I know, you listen to the truth, you might get saved or something. But look at the response. The fair, I mean, they're as dismissive as some politicians towards their own Secret Service detail. You know, they just write them off as a bunch of buffoons. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? We know better. We have all the right degrees. We've been to the right schools. Listen to us. But this crowd, this rabble, which does not know the law, is accursed. And so here again, here's a contrast between the small and the great, the, uh, the hoi polloi, the crowds, and, the, and the, the better than thou type people, interestingly enough. And of course, they're actually factually wrong. Nicodemus was one of them. He was a leader among them. 
than he had gotten saved back in chapter 3 when it comes right down to it. In any event, there's a lot here that we could teach. We could stop and give a whole doctoral study related to um, class distinctions in a culture and, and what are those expectations? Why do we expect because somebody is better off in a, in a higher uh, tax bracket that somehow I should listen to him more than I should listen to, to uh, somebody else that's not? What is the absolute standard of the Word of God? All right. Well, I don't have that kind of time. I've got to get through verse 31 by the end of the hour. O ye of little faith. And what are these animals doing here? It's interesting, the lion and the leopard and the wolf and these guys, it's part of God's judgment. You ever study the cycles of discipline? Isolation in urban areas. Let's just hole up here in our gated community. Let's just wall off trouble and let's isolate. Let's stay close to home because it's getting rough out there and that can be true whether these animals are actually zoological or anthropological animals we got a lot of animals roaming the streets all right they just happen to be bipedal and humanoid okay but they're animalistic in their outlook and in their activity isolation in urban areas and increasing savagery in the rural areas indicative of the five cycles of discipline upon a nation Leviticus 26.22. Much larger context there in Leviticus 26. If you ever do that study, and some of you have done it before, uh, on the cycles of discipline, you know, that fifth cycle is when the nation is removed from human history. And, and God's in charge of that. God will, He's responsible every time a nation is birthed, and He's responsible every time a nation is extinct. Uh, Acts 17, by the way, we taught that not too long ago that the boundaries of their habitation and their times, their appointed times are in the hands of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so discipline is coming among them. Are they going to listen? Probably not. We already saw in verse 3 that they're not very responsive to, uh, to discipline. Our second paragraph, verses 7 through 14. The young adult population was in complete generational rebellion. The young adult generation was uh, population. The young adult population was in complete generational rebellion. Jeremiah five verses seven through fourteen. We saw a little bit ago that chapter in Ezekiel where God is faithful and he's he's dealing with generations at a time, and in one generation there may be wrath, but if he sees righteousness in that next generation. God can forestall that wrath and He can delay and He can defer in grace and bring that righteous generation into the picture. But what happens when the next generation and the next generation and the next generation are going from bad to worse to worse? How long does that last? Anybody know? You got a passage you might cite? The third and the fourth generation. That's as far as He lets it go. The wrath of God to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. But he's promised to a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. So on the other hand, what we have to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, in the fullness of time beyond the millennium, we've got that beautiful promise of a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. What a day to look forward to there.
But let's look at these uh, young people. And uh, let's not get too depressed, all right? Don't get ahead of me now in the doctrine, in the development. But, and, and also remember, Jeremiah himself is probably 10 years old. All right, he was called as a youth, and this is one of his early sermons. So he's maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. He can't be much older than that in these early chapters. Uh, the king he's serving under was, was made king when he was 8 years old, and I suspect Jeremiah may have been the same exact age. He was a youth as his king was, and uh, likely he was 8 or 10 years old when he's preaching this. And so, I mean, that's one thing when older folks look to the next generation and say, oh, well, you know, those millennials... They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. You know, it's one thing when the old folks are criticizing. That always happens. But what if it's what if it's one of their own or even somebody younger? What if it's a millennial themselves or somebody younger? I don't even know what comes after millennials, but somebody younger than the millennials, these kids that we're singing here today. If they start looking around because they've got doctrine, they're saved, and they start looking around and they're looking at that generation, shaking their heads, <laughs> saying, what are they doing? That's a problem. Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. So, I mean, you realize you fail to bring up a generation in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You are responsible to train up that godly seed in this generation and blown it. The coming generation, the young adult population, those that are just now leaving home, leaving father and mother, uh, getting married, starting their families together, they haven't been grounded. They're going to be worse than their parents. So your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the fall, in other words, they had everything they needed. You scraped, you saved, you compromised. You know, think of what the uh, the uh, uh, depression generation did and and uh, what they went through and how they scrimped and saved and survived and won World War II and then birthed the baby boomers. And what do the baby boomers have to sacrifice? And then they birthed the, the 1960s. What did they sacrifice? All right. I'm going to get lost in this. I've got to get through verse 31. They had everything. I fed them to the full. I fed them to the full. And they committed adultery. They trooped to the harlot's house. They were lined up. They were marching in formation. They were trooping to the harlot's house. They were well-fed, lusty horses. I spent about six hours on that phrase in my study. It's interesting. All right. Each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. All right. The whole generation, the entire mindset is on personal gratification. It's on me and what makes me feel good. This generation, interestingly enough, they came of age during Josiah's Reformation. Good King Josiah, he was the last good king of of Judah. Everyone after him was downhill and worse. And so this generation came of age during Josiah's Reformation, yet they were given over to maximum unrestrained debauchery. I think any, any believer with positive volition like Daniel and Ezekiel, anyone, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, anyone, with a kind of righteousness that could have saved Jerusalem, God put them in Babylon. He sent them into captivity. And this generation left behind was beyond uh, repair. Coming of age during Josiah's Reformation. And I ponder that a lot. I ponder that a lot. My formative years, teen years, and young 20s, I mean, 
I, to me, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble here. I love the 1980s because that's when I grew up. You know, I never got, I wasn't old enough to vote for Reagan, but I wanted to. I went to, I enlisted under Reagan, but I was too young to vote in uh, the Reagan elections. And so you think about the 80s, and to me, man, oh, you know, the good old days. But then I get in trouble because it was the 90s when I met my wife and had my babies and became a pastor and all that other, all that other stuff happened in the 90s. But to me, the 80s led to the 90s. <laughs> all right? In any event, what am I saying? When a generation is held accountable, when a generation is put in the balance, mene, mene, tik lufershen, you've been weighed and you've been found wanting, and God deals with them. And he says, if you're over 20, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're not going to go into the promised land. He deals with them on a generational basis. And that's what we see here. Given over to maximum unrestrained debauchery. You know, what hill have you not fornicated on? What tree have you not fornicated under? What harlot have you not? I mean, it's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. No regard for marriage. I mean, this is the time when the young people should be leaving father and mother, cleaving to one another. The two become one flesh, not the 50 become 50 fleshes and whatever else. All right? It is an uncontrolled generation. And they're given over. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? I ask myself that of America. I mean, goodness. He either has to lower the boom on us or apologize to Sodom or something related to other judgment. Verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy. Another pantomime, another mission. He's going to go up into the, into the vineyards and just start wreaking havoc. And you can imagine they're going to say, what are you doing? Well, thus saith the Lord, Right? Go up to the vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. There, uh, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord. This generation is in a denial of truth. They have lied about the Lord and said, not he, or he does not exist. There is no Yahweh. Not Yahweh. Who wants to serve Yahweh? Yahweh's a boring God. Yahweh is a spoil sport. Yahweh has all these rules like thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and, you know, what a bummer. And Baal, on the other hand, Baal worship was prominent. And uh, Chemosh and all these other false gods under King Manasseh and all these other wicked kings. Not only do they, they don't have the bad rules, right? They've got fun rules. Going to church is having sex with priestesses and we'll have fertility rituals and our crops will do great. Well, you see where the generation has gone. Their attitude towards the Word of God was dismissive and denied all accountability. Not Yahweh, not Him. You know? I've had people say, I'm not going to be Christian, that Bible of yours tells me I can't be living with my girlfriend. So I might become a Buddhist or something. Until you find something in Buddhism you don't like, right? I mean, are you just 
picking a religion based on your own preferences? Or what are you doing? The attitude towards the Word of God was dismissive and denied all accountability. So, not he. Misfortune will not come upon us. We will not see sword or famine. And they've got it completely backwards. When you read in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel preaches the fact that they thought that it was the captives that were judged. And the ones left behind in Jerusalem were the favored ones. Said, we've got it made. We get to stay here safe in Jerusalem where the temple is. God won't destroy His own temple. We're safe here. And it's all those exiles, Daniel and Ezekiel and Shadrach and those guys. They're obviously the cursed ones. And they had it backwards. Absolutely backwards. God had rescued His remnant and He had left the remainder there to be condemned. So we won't see sword and famine. The prophets are as wind. You know, those Bible-thumping pastors, they don't know what they're talking about. And the Word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. When you're dismissive of the Word of God, it doesn't change your accountability under the Word of God. When Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, says, Thus saith the Lord, you just don't put your fingers in your ears and say, Not listening, not listening, not listening. All right? Because you're still accountable. And in the church age, of course, we're doubly accountable. We've got Old Testament and New Testament. Doubly accountable. And so as a consequence, the ministry of Jeremiah will be like fire to the kindling. Verse 14, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, God of hosts, Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of the armies. You know, he's got many, many different names in the Old Testament, but when he uses Lord God of the armies, okay, that's, he's, he's, he's in a military uniform. He is coming to inflict wrath. It's not good. Thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. It will consume them. Everything Jeremiah utters from this point forward is going to have a hostile reaction, like burnt, like fire to the to the kindling. You can imagine. Jeremiah has instances. Ezekiel has instances. They're preaching and people are just dropping dead right in front of them. Imagine that. I've never yet experienced that at Austin Bible Church, but who knows? A day may come. I hope not. I guess. I don't know. What would I do? I guess I've done 30 funerals. I'll just add one more to the list. And No, I don't know. What would you do? But here's the prophets preaching. And people are dropping dead right in front of them in, uh, in the application. Too many giggles out there. You guys are thinking of something. You're creating a short list of who you think it's going to be when it finally... <laughs> now... We get to verses 15 through 19. It's kind of interesting. And how much of this is uh, unique? Very little. A lot of this is borrowed from Deuteronomy. A lot of this comes from the law. Sometimes the very words themselves, and in every instance, the ideas were first prophesied by Moses. Jeremiah restates the Mosaic prophecy concerning captivity. It's not a new message. 
It has been a long time coming. God is so long-suffering. He is so slow to anger. So when the anger finally does hit, it's been coming for a while. It's been building for a while. It's nothing new. And so Jeremiah gets to restate Mosaic prophecy. And I find it interesting because remember the law had been lost for some time. It was rediscovered. The Torah scroll was rediscovered in Josiah's days. And it's, and it's kind of interesting how many of the very same verbal expressions come out of Deuteronomy and find themselves in Jeremiah. <coughs> Behold, verse 15, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. This is coming right out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 and following. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. You know, in every army, you've got your grunts, you've got your ground troops, then you've got your special forces. You've got your, your absolutely beyond belief American sniper type of guys, right? Your Navy SEALs and, and all that, all right? And uh, imagine if your whole army was like that, Okay. You didn't have your basic uh, infantry grunts or your basic kind of normal soldiers. Everybody was special forces. Everybody was Navy SEAL. Imagine how uh, intimidating that would be, especially if they're the attacking army and your army is filled with um, remnants, draft uh, draftees and other folks that don't want to be in the army anyway and, uh, and things like that. Um, their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. See, judgment is coming. They should have learned 150 years earlier when the northern kingdom was swept away. Isaiah was preaching at them. Hezekiah was listening and responding. But in the meantime, who followed, who followed Hezekiah? Manasseh. 55 years of darkness. And Judah became worse than Israel ever dreamed of. The younger sister was worse than the older sister, we're told, in uh, the message there. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. Even then. And we talked about that fifth cycle of discipline. And it goes through cycles, and each one gets worse, and each one gets worse, and each one gets worse. But at each cycle, at each step, there is a repentance opportunity. And if a nation is humbled, right? Nineveh repented when Jonah went and preached. If a Gentile nation is humbled, they turn to the Word of God, they get saved, and and so they can save, they can stop that cycle right then, right there. All right? But when they reach the fifth cycle, they're done. They're removed from human history. And guess what? Unless we're talking about the Jewish nation, unless we're talking about the covenant people of Israel, there is no Gentile nation that's promised to come back. United States of America, if we get destroyed in the fifth cycle of discipline, we have no guarantee of restoration. There's no covenant promise. Israel, however, has eternal covenant promises. Israel is the only earthly nation that can survive 
that fifth cycle and still be restored. Not because they deserve it, but because God said that they were his people forever. I want to make sure that we understand that. The judgment is righteous as a consequence to the Jews' disobedience to Yahweh. Israel had disobeyed. They were getting what they had deserved. And when you, when you start doing the woe is me and why is this happening to me, typically you're already in, in delusional territory because if you could stop and think rationally and apply the Word of God you've been ignoring all this time, if you would apply the Word of God and look at it, you wouldn't have to ask why this is happening to you. You would know because the Word of God will have told you. And so it's described there in verse 19. It shall come about when they say, why has the Lord our God done these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Jeremiah gets to answer their woe is me questions. All right. They're going to ask, why is this happening to us? Jeremiah is going to tell them and they're not going to like it. And it's kind of an interesting irony too, isn't it? Because they're serving Baal, they're serving Molech, they're serving Chemosh, they're, they're worshiping Ashtoreth and, and different gods and goddesses. They're, uh, they're eating the, the honey cakes and they're uh, weeping for Tammuz, they're serving Ishtar and all these things. They're, they're going to every religion outside of Israel, outside of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're finding all of these foreign gods. And so what does Yahweh say? Okay, <laughs> you're serving those foreign gods, huh? Well, guess what? You're going to go live in those foreign lands. He is dispersing his people in, the, in this application of judgment. Let me go ahead at this time and grab Deuteronomy 28. You know, this is before Moses dies. This is his last testament here and towards the end of his life. And he's, they're on the verge of entering into the land and he's warning them. They've accepted a conditional covenant. There's blessings and there's cursings. They can obey, they can disobey, and God will be faithful in both cases. All right? As we saw in Jeremiah 5, this judgment is righteous. God's not unfair when He condemns them. And so, uh, in Deuteronomy 28, and some of this is kind of gruesome, but um, verse 49, the Lord, and, and this is after the, the ifs, if you do, if you do, and you can obey or disobey, and these curses will come upon you if you disobey, and if you don't serve Him with a whole heart and all this. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. Does that sound familiar? We just read it in Jeremiah 5. But here it is in Deuteronomy. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. And uh, here's what they're going to plunder, and here's what they're going to take. And uh, you guys are going to resort to cannibalism because you're starving in the siege. And it gets uh, pretty gruesome in these verses. Let me get down to verse 58. We have the refined and the delicate woman among you in verse 56. And uh, yeah, that's no fun. And then uh, after birth in verse... Oh, these are gruesome. All right, verse 58... 
If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He gave them the Mosaic law. It was completely conditional. If you obey me, these are your blessings. If you disobey me, these are your cursings including ultimately the fifth cycle of discipline and captivity. And that's what Jerusalem is headed for. And they're going to have 70 years of captivity in, uh, in, in Babylon while God gives the land its Sabbath rests. The land itself has to recover from all the defilement that Israel has inflicted upon it. So the judgment is righteous. And yet... Even in complete dispersion, the Jews will not face a complete destruction. You know, there's a lot of diasporas in the world. The Jewish diaspora globally and other diasporas. There are are people groups scattered across the world. You can even find Assyrians today. The descendants of the Old Testament Assyrians. The last remnants, minor, I mean, we're talking a few thousand people. You can find Native American tribes. Are they ever going to get their empires back? Are they ever going to get their nations back? Will this land ever become Comanche again? Or has God closed that door and removed them as a nation? They may have descendants and stragglers, but as a nation. Israel is the, was resurrected in 1948, and it can never be destroyed. Even in a complete dispersion, the Jews will not face a complete destruction we saw that last week in chapter 4 it's the main point being made here in chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 and it anchors the theology of romans 9 10 and 11 the fact that we in the church need to understand our place in relationship with israel god is not done with israel the church does not replace israel the church is not new testament israel and israel was not the old testament church There is a future for Israel once the church is complete. When that trumpet sounds and we are raptured out of here, God will resume the program for Israel because there remains a 70th week in the Daniel 9 prophecy. And God has to be faithful to fulfill that. So the whole theology here in Romans 11, 1 through 5, addresses this. If you've got any friends that are all wrapped up in anti-Semitism, or thinking that God's done with Israel, or that the Jews don't have a future, bring them here. Show them chapter 9, 10, and 11, right in the smack in the middle of Romans. And say, if you, if you don't believe this, why do you believe Romans 6.23? <laughs> why do you believe that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus? Why, why believe that if you don't believe this? Israel has a future. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? How can he reject his people? They're his. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul had a lot of patriotism, a lot of love for his, you know, his racial people. He just wanted them to get saved. <laughs> as long as they stay in unbelief, they're going to be under judgment. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I find it amazing that people can create these bizarre definitions of foreknowledge and then they limit what God foreknows. 
And then they act all surprised. Or like they act like God's all surprised when sinners sin. When Israel rebels. When believers die, the sin and the death. Was that a shock to God? Oh my goodness, he turned out bad. I guess he wasn't really of the elect to begin with. No, guess what? God knew that ahead of time. God knows the rebellion that's on the way. And it didn't stop him from choosing the Jewish people. He does not reject those whom he foreknew. I believe we'll see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. Of course, they were saved. They just died the sin and the death. They didn't lose their salvation. In any event, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? You talk about another prophet that stood alone in his day and age. The prophet uh, Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. It's interesting. He's totally wrong about this. There are thousands that haven't bent the knee to Baal. Just he, he doesn't see it. He doesn't know it. He thinks he's all alone. Jeremiah, though, is the reality. Jeremiah is the last man standing. The last true, genuine prophet in Jerusalem. All right, well, issues there as well. Finally, verses 20 through 31. I told you we'd make it. Although I freely admit the last slide is the fastest from week to week. The chapter closes with a summary of Judah's apostasy as a culture without any reason for God not to destroy them. They are a culture that has no reason for God not to destroy them. And I think this is 2016 America. Perhaps. Then again, maybe there's a remnant. Maybe there's a uh, hundred faithful pastors and a hundred faithful flocks. Or not. Teaching the Word of God and maintaining salt and light benefit for the uh, earthly nation we live in. Verses 20 through 31. This is a generation without any reason for God not to destroy them. And, and sometimes, you know, that's the best place to be. You just fall on your face in prayer and say, Lord, we don't deserve a thing. But you're a God of grace. And for your name's sake, for your name's sake, I, I'm not praying for a president this November that we deserve. Because I'm pretty sure what we deserve. But I'm praying for mercy. And I'm praying that God will shine in his grace. Maybe give us our Josiah, give us our last believing president. Whatever may be the case. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people. Listen up, stupid people. Who have eyes but do not see. Who have ears but do not hear. He's quoting Isaiah here. He's, he's seeing Isaiah fulfilled and, he, and he's not happy about it. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea. An eternal decree so it cannot cross over. You realize that? God gave stability to the oceans. Why is the beach at the beach? Okay? I mean, why is that the shore? Why doesn't the ocean just decide to cover all the land while it's at it? Okay? I know, I know. There's 
tides and gravity and whatever. Science is so smart to figure these things out. But who set all this up? And by whose hand are they maintained? And so if the ocean does what it's supposed to do, why don't you? (laughs) Why don't my people listen to the Word of God and do what they're designed to do? An eternal decree, so it cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. I think he did that for a purpose. There's a reason why. The, the waves can crash and roar and do what they do, but there's a line they cannot cross, and it's a principle in the angelic conflict. Fallen angels can froth and wave and blow and, and be, do everything they want to do, only up to the line that God says, thou shalt not cross. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, he draws the line and says, Satan, you can't step over that line. And we have a visible portrayal of that every beach you go to. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. It's the last thing that ever crossed their mind. Who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Last thing on their mind is that their God is a God of grace that gave them the food they eat, the air they breathe, the clothes they wear. Everything they have is a gift from God and they don't even recognize it. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. They're not content to live their godless life. They want to trap you. They want to grab every Christian they can, every Bible-believing Christian they can, and get them into their lost way of life. Get them into their godless mindset. Therefore, they become great and rich. Of course, the God of this age rewards them. They are fat, they are sleek. They excel in deeds of wickedness. But they do not plead the cause of the orphan that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? How can I not inflict this wrath? Verse 30 and 31, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule in their own authority. And my people love it so. The final, the, the nail in the coffin, the straw on the camel's back, the, la- the last, you know, final bit of insult to injury is that now even the churches are going the way of the world. The churches are preaching more Darwinism and more Freudianism and more in, uh, of the satanic lies than even the universities. And the people are eating it up. Absolutely eating it up. They do not love the Lord their God. They do not love their neighbor. You take verses 20 through 25, God word. Take verses 26 through 29, man word. And you realize the whole culture is insane. (laughs) The prophets and the priests are out of control and the people couldn't be any happier about it. This is their kind of church. This is their kind of truth. Preach it, preach it, you know. The ear ticklers from 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. It's what Isaiah warned about in Isaiah 30, verses 10 and 11. It's what Micah warns about in Micah 2, 11. I'm out of time, so you'll have to look those up. 
Isaiah 30, verses 10 and 11, Micah 2, 11, and 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. That's why I tell folks, I say, you know, if you're hungry for truth, and, God, and ask God to lead you to a local church, and sit under the authority of a faithful shepherd, and He will feed you, and you can study, and you will grow, and the Spirit will testify to your human spirit that this is truth, you don't have to worry about the, the lies. The Spirit will highlight those for you. The believers that fall under the false teaching, they want to fall under the false teaching. Those who get sucked into those systems, that's what they're looking for. They want their ears tickled. They're deliberately looking to be lied to. And they accept it as truth because that's what they want. So many things there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah. He's preaching things of the age of 10, Father, that you're providing for him. And it's amazing to think of what he stood before and all the conflict he endured. Father, uh, he didn't have the... Uh, he's so much like our Savior. Jesus was such a... Uh, Jeremiah was such a type of Christ. And even, even when Jesus was, was ministering, some of them thought he was Jeremiah that had returned. And yet... Father, uh, he suffered more than any of the prophets before him. And uh, that too makes him more Christ-like. I just thank you for this book study. Pray you'll continue to bless it. It's a fast format, Father, I know that. But um, bless chapter by chapter these studies. Uh, I believe our nation needs it. I believe this congregation needs it. Open our eyes to where we are in our generation. Equip us through your truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.